Welcome to the Active Shooter Incident Management Podcast. My name is Bill Godfrey. I'm your podcast host. It has been a minute since the last podcast we've done. I'm excited to be back, but I'm even more excited that we're back with a very special guest today. I would like to introduce you to Four Eels, the Executive Director of the National Tactical Officers Association, known to our law enforcement audience as the NTOA. Thor, welcome. Thank you very much. Hey, uh, before we get going on this, because uh, we probably have some audience members, uh, you know, uh, that aren't familiar with NTOA because we have more than just law enforcement. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the NTOA and its mission and and where you guys are going? Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to do so. The NTOA is a nonprofit organization. It was originally created in 1983 by a then uh, lieutenant with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department who was hoping to establish an association for networking, information sharing among tactical teams in the United States while they were in their relative infancy and ensuring that through this shared information and knowledge that it would professionalize this fledging sub-discipline within law enforcement. And over these past decades, this association has grown now to uh, roughly 40,000 members with specialties that now include patrol, tactical EMS, crisis negotiations, corrections. And we even now also have membership from fire and EMS uh, as a result of the whole development of rescue task forces and the need with these new emerging threats for all of these disciplines to be able to work and collaborate together in critical incidents for successful outcomes. Uh, We teach roughly 200 classes a year. Uh, We have taught all over the world and we have membership uh, from five continents. So uh, it is grown exponentially since the founder, uh, John Coleman, uh, first created the association. Wow. that You know, that's fascinating. Um, I didn't realize that you guys had formed back in 1983. That is uh, pretty amazing. And and I'm so excited to hear you talk about the Fire EMS membership and the Pursuant of Rescue Task Force. And obviously, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But we've got a big announcement to offer today. Um you want to go ahead and break the news to the audience? Well, uh, happy to. Uh, you know, we are extremely excited to be able to uh, enter into this collaborative agreement with C3 Pathways and the endorsement and the creation of a lot of information sharing between our two uh, entities, uh, but particularly as it pertains to the uh, active assailant, active shooter checklist. Uh, I think that this is really a very important and potentially impactful uh, partnership in helping those first responders that are tasked with a very, very difficult job in making good decisions in a time-compressed and stressful environment. So I think uh, this is just the beginning of many good things to come between uh, our two our two companies and associations. I, I think it's wonderful. I'm, I'm so very excited to, to have uh, you guys recognize um, uh, the, the checklist as, uh, and endorse it as a national standard. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just blown away and, and so humbled by that, along with 
the rest of the C3 team and the instructors that have been doing training for years, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. You know, we've been uh, using the checklist and training for uh, over 10 years now and um, have some 3,000 different agencies from law enforcement, fire, EMS, emergency management, uh, you know, across the country that are using it. But this is the first time that we've actually had uh, a national uh, uh, standard-setting body such as yourself. And, and for those not on the law enforcement side, uh, NTOA is essentially to law enforcement what the uh, NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association, is to the fire department and being able to set um, the standards and set national standards. And we are just um, so honored to have you guys recognize that and endorse it. It's, it's, uh, I think it's a really big deal. Uh, and I've obviously been gone from active duty for a little bit now, but it always made me more comfortable as a responder when I knew that the the process or the procedure that I was following was a national standard. It wasn't just something we thunk up on the spot. And, and um, it, it, you know, how does that sit with you? Because I know you guys got into writing the standards for uh, originally the tactical teams, SWAT teams, years ago, and it's branched much beyond that. You know, Thor, where do you where do you think the importance of those national standards sit with uh, responders? Well, I think they're more important today than they ever have been. And I don't think you have to look very far in the news or, or elsewhere, uh, your local legislators, to recognize that there is a loud hue and cry for standards, for some benchmark that our communities and our citizens that we serve are able to look to, to be able to better gauge, are we doing what we're supposed to do when we're supposed to do it? And, you know, we talk about transparency and these things that everyone is calling for, but if they don't have something to really look at and to compare uh, against, it's difficult. And let's face it, if we're going to be very frank and honest, uh, many of us in law enforcement and our, our brothers and sisters in fire and EMS get frustrated at much of the criticism that's directed our way because there's this perceived bias and or there's this willful uh, proliferation of misinformation, et cetera. But once we calm down and we get past the emotional aspect of that and we really begin to take a hard look at it, what we realize is, well, there's really not much information out there. And I had a very good friend of mine share with me once this, this old adage of, you know, if you don't tell your story, somebody else will, and you may not like it. Oh, boy, and, is that true? You know, it's, it's so true. And so for us to be able to set standards that we ourselves have taken the time to objectively and very deliberately find the best minds, the best experience from all these disciplines, fire, EMS, and law enforcement, and look at our roles and our responsibilities in these critical incidents and have them provide the input on what the priorities should be, uh, when and where we should be doing certain things, when and where we shouldn't be doing other things, and then in establishing a standard like that, that then can be converted into a template and or roadmap, which 
enhances the probabilities of success instead of allowing just fate to determine the outcome is exactly what we should be doing. And so we too, like you, are extremely humbled and, and quite honestly honored to be part of putting such a high quality, high caliber product out there to enhance our first responders' capabilities. It, it, it's really uh, exciting to see the impact that this is likely to have. I, I completely agree with you I, on, on everything you said. And I, I think the other thing that can have really significant value to, to, to the standards is the, the ability to kind of normalize the terminology because uh, sometimes it sounds stupid, but boy, in an emergency and in a crisis, um, when people are speaking different languages, you know, in different terminologies, it can really get in the way. And, you know, the classic example of this, of course, in our business for the last, I don't know, 40 years now has been the use of 10 codes uh, and signals day to day. Um, but when you start to get multiple agencies together, nobody uses the same codes. And the next thing you know, you've got confusion over over what's going on. And and so standardizing that terminology and, and the other piece of this that just seems so incredibly important to me is when you have one of these horrible uh, events, and they are always tragic, the, the, even the ones that have the best outcomes are still horrible and tragic. Um, when you have these events, you're going to have people responding and showing up on your scene to be part of that response that you've never met you've never trained with. They may be from agencies you hadn't even heard of, especially, you know, from some of the federal law enforcement agencies that don't typically have a high profile, but if they're in the area, they will show up to help. If you don't have everybody on the same page, what's that going to look like? Well, I absolutely agree with you, Bill. Um, I think we know, unfortunately, through some very hard and difficult lessons learned uh, from these tragedies, I could not echo your perspective of all of these are tragic and uh, we, we want to do our best to not repeat mistakes. And yet we find that one of the most common mistakes is lack of communication, lack of understanding. And to your point, uh, whether it's 10 code or signals or different things, it's like speaking different languages. I mean, there's a reason that in air travel, uh, English was selected as the single language that all airlines will use when they speak to air traffic control uh, so that there is consistent verbiage, terminology, etc., that's being utilized, which mitigates the potential for misunderstanding and, and, and error and then tragic outcome. Uh, we should be equally committed to ensuring that in critical incidents, knowing, to your point, that there will be multiple agencies interfacing with one another, that we are not adding to the complexity of the problem, but doing everything we can to further simplify it and then make better decisions leading to the, the more optimal outcome. 
boy, we, we are completely on the same page there. I, you know, we way back when, uh, and, and I know I've shared this with you, uh, previously, but for the benefit of the audience, um, way back when the origin story of this checklist came from a training experience we had where things just were not going very well in the exercises. And we kind of did an analysis after the fact and, and said, you know, what's going on here? We tried and experimented with a couple of different things. And lo and behold, we found that, you know, changing up the way we were doing things and changing the order in which we were doing things suddenly had this huge impact. And I don't mean like one or two minutes. I'm talking 15 to 20 minutes faster getting patients off the scene of, of one of these events. And we kind of realized that there's fundamentally um, two huge problems, two huge gaps that have been left because so much of the uh, active threat, active shooter, active assailant training over the years that's been done has been focused on stopping the threat and obviously a critical part of the response. But very, very little of that training covered anything past stopping the threat. And and as a result, what we realized was we've got an integration problem, meaning police, uh, law enforcement agencies working with other law enforcement agencies that they don't normally work with day to day wasn't terribly comfortable. There wasn't really clear how we were supposed to do that and how we were supposed to integrate those together. And that compounded when we looked at law enforcement and fire EMS working together. And I realized that kind of sounds a little silly because a lot of times we're responding to same calls day in, day out, you know, car accidents, things like this, but that's a different type of response. And it's a different type of you and I working together. Whereas in the case of an active shooter, you and I become part of the same team. It's not like on the structure fire where you're holding the perimeter and I'm going in on the hose line with a bunch of firefighters. It'd be like you being on the hose line with us. And we have to rely on each other. We have to know what we're doing and, and, and have that model for, for how to work together. And the other, you know, the, what, what I like to call the integration problem. And then the other problem that became horribly apparent is that the order in which you do things or don't do things really can impact very negatively how long it takes to get things done, how long it takes to neutralize a threat, how long it takes to get to the injured, get them off the scene and get them transported to a hospital. Um, you know, what we classically call the clock problem. Um, how, do, how does that fit with your read of what you've seen going on over the years? Cause I know NTOA has been part of active shooter training since, um, uh, I certainly since Columbine, but I think you guys were doing some stuff before then too, weren't you? Well, yes, we were uh, really very innovative, instrumental in evaluating tactics uh, for quite a number of years. And once the tragedy of Columbine began to unfold before our eyes, it was within days that the NTOA had developed a active shooter training program that we completely revamped our perspective on law enforcement's role and what our responsibilities were and things of that nature. And I do agree with you that for a long time, we had probably a disproportionate emphasis on this address the threat versus a more balanced approach of consideration, okay, yes, we do need to neutralize the threat unquestionably, 
but there is more than one way to neutralize the threat. You can neutralize the threat by removing potential victims and not ever fire a shot or actively engage the threat. So there are different ways to approach the problem. And what I think has been really encouraging to see is the dialogue, the communication, the cooperation between fire EMS and law enforcement in recognizing that each of our responsibilities is not in conflict. And in fact, they are really singular in nature, which is our primary goal is to save lives. For yes. all three of those uh, specific uh, responding uh, entities. And so we have a, a duty, morally and ethically, to find out how we're going to assist one another in being successful in doing that and doing it in a manner in which we're not unwittingly, uh, unknowingly creating difficulties. So we have to anticipate when we push a domino, you know, is it going to interfere with any of your dominoes or others that cause problems? Uh, I think we've done a very, very good job of improving with, unfortunately, each of these incidents in an after-action analysis. We've uh, gotten better and better. But to circle back around, this the checklist is a compilation of that. And it really is a huge, huge tool in helping uh, ensure that we don't go out and reinvent the wheel in a negative manner. We don't go out and uh, repeat these mistakes, uh, albeit um, noble effort on our part. If we're still repeating mistakes that we need not be repeating, it's still uh, unnecessary. The checklist really does a lot in helping that uh, you know, law enforcement has been fractured for years in that. I, by that, I mean there are over 18,000 police departments in America and a little over 3,000 sheriff's departments and, you know, an unknown but significant number of federal uh, partners involved in this equation. And there's really very few standards. So there are a lot of ways of doing things. And when you bring two law enforcement agencies, they say city police department and a county sheriff's department, and if they don't have that commonality in purpose and in function and in terminology and in tactics and familiarity, and then you add other partners to that, it makes it very, very difficult to be successful. Um, You know, you mentioned something about time and fighting the clock. And in the, within the NTOA, we make a, a big point of trying to get people to appreciate that there's this good time and then there is bad time. And in an active shooter scenario, the second the shooting starts, we're in bad time. And we now have a responsibility to interrupt that cycle and get it into good time. Good time being the time in which law enforcement, fire EMS, is using to gain a tactical advantage to reduce the potential for serious injury or death and to save lives. Right now, when there's not an incident unfolding, we're in good time. 
And so now is when fire, EMS, and law enforcement should be working together, speaking together, training together, functioning together as much as we can in anticipation of critical incidents so that when we do come together, many of those problems don't even exist because we've already forecasted them, addressed them, and eliminated them from the possibility of occurrence through preparation and planning. Yeah. And the, and the all important training and, and retraining, you know, you know, uh, we, I I ran some numbers here. This was actually just a few months ago. I was talking with somebody and it, and it struck me. Um, and it's a little bit different all over the country where you are, but most, uh, for the most part in public safety, it's uh, 25 years of active duty before you retire out. There's just at a, at a certain point, a certain age, it's hard for the, the bodies to kind of keep up with the physical demands of the job. So, you know, typical is 25 years and out. And, um, and then if you, so if you factor in your attrition from retirement, from full career retirement, your attrition from some people who just leave the business, uh, for whatever reasons, your attrition for promotions and uh, moving up or moving to different agencies, I, I was estimating that every police department, sheriff's office, fire department, EMS agency, everybody out there is turning over somewhere around 7% of their workforce every year. And so when you think about that and the importance of staying frosty on uh, your active shooter incident management training, it is a never-ending task to constantly be training the new people, coming back around, training the new supervisors, uh, and, and providing that ongoing refresher so that the retention is there as well. Because it's not like you can do it one time in your career and hold on to it for 25 years. It just doesn't work like that. Absolutely. I mean, that's very well said. And, and that's really a very interesting number uh, to hear. I would not uh, heard anything like that before. But, you know, yeah, close to 10% of your workforce at any point in time is being new or unfamiliar. Uh, it would make sense that you would want to be in a continual training cycle uh, to develop the skill set necessary to function well. But I think, you know, unfortunately, as recent events have demonstrated to us uh, in a number of occasions, that simply training alone does not equate to competency and proficiency. Uh, so yes, we correct. Have even I, absolutely. A, a greater obligation to be focused on the quality of our training as well as the critical feedback of our training is never be complacent, never settle for good enough. Um, you know, the standard that, that I tend to profess to people is anytime you run through an evolution of something, if this were real and it was your family involved, would you be comfortable with it? Yeah, that's, that's Every a, time. That's a good, that's a good benchmark. I, 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 to me, one of the most critical components of the training that we do, the active shooter incident management training that we do, um, is the fact that we make people practice. Uh, you know, like, like our, for example, our advanced class that's three days long. Um, they're running 11 scenarios from dispatch to last patient transported. And those scenarios increase in difficulty. They increase in the numbers of shooters, the numbers of, of injured, uh, all of those things. But it builds and there's repetition and everybody rotates through the different jobs. And so 
over the course of that three days, you you get to practice. And the and the simple analogy, and and it's oversimplification, but for purposes of illustration, you're not going to get to the Super Bowl by practicing one time. You got to do it right. over and over and over again. Um, right. And and I think it's hard today's day and age. Law enforcement, fire, EMS, the number of training requirements just keeps going up and up and up. But the ability to come off the road long enough to do your training is severely limited. It's going the opposite direction. (laughs) So, you know, as staffing through recruiting and retention is negatively impacted, uh, the availability of personnel to attend training and yet to meet your day-to-day obligations of service in any one of the disciplines of police, fire, or EMS is, is tough. And you could not have said it better. There are more competing interests in training today than ever before. And, you know, it's easy to blame a chief for <laughs> saying no to this and yes to that, et cetera, yes. without really fully appreciating all the different tasks that they have been given and uh, ordered to have accomplished within said period of time. Yeah, I, I don't know. All, I don't know any chief that would actually say, "Yeah, I've got the time and money to get that training done. I just don't care enough to do it." I, that that correct. that's just not what goes on. No, it isn't, and it's you know they're an easy scapegoat. But uh, you know, I I have a pet peeve with regard to you know that whole thing, which is well, we have to do less with, or we have to do more with less. <laughs> And, uh, you know, unfortunately, that has become so commonplace in our vernacular in this day and age. We've we've almost arrived at a point where we're beginning to either believe it or try to believe it. And I'm constantly trying to argue that don't settle for that. Recognize there is one thing you can do with less. And that's less. Uh, you can go talk to the most brilliant people on the planet, work whatever mathematical, statistical formula you want or otherwise, but you can do one thing with less, and that's less. The question then becomes, what do you want to do less of? Do you want less quantity? Do you want less quality? Or do you want less of both? But it'll be one of those three, but nonetheless, it will be less. And uh, that is something we have to be very cognizant of and do our utmost in safeguarding against, in recognizing if our training time is limited, then we need to prioritize it. And we need to be very careful about recognizing what is most important. At the end of the day, no one has any problem with arriving at agreements that saving lives is at the top of the list. And so when we have to pick and choose, uh, we need to be mindful of that. I completely agree with you. And I, I think the other piece of that is a, as a former fire chief, you're always having to make compromises. And that's, that's part of the job. It goes with the territory. If you're not willing to do that, then the job's not for you. You got to make decisions. You have to prioritize. You have to compromise. But I think the other piece of that 
you also have to inform your boss, your city manager, your county manager, the mayor, your elected officials. You have to say, look, here's what we're doing, and this is good. Here's what we're not doing because we, you know, we can't do this. We don't have this to win on that. I, I don't expect you to act on it. I just want you to understand that. Do you have any questions about what we are or we're not doing and, and why? And I, I, I think that that's something that often we, we forget to close the loop with the leadership to say, um, you know, we've got a thousand hours of training requirements to fit into a 120 hour bag. Um, something's right. not going to get done. And, right. you know, here's, here's where we're at this year. Um, and, and you make those, you make those compromises. Uh, yeah. it's a tough gig. Well, Thor, we're coming up on the end of our time. I, I am just so excited and so appreciative for what you're doing and the NTOA and, and just the, the support that you guys are, are throwing our way. Um, what's, what lies ahead for the NTOA? Any, anything coming up that you want to, you want to kind of tease or talk about? Well, yeah, I mean, we have several uh, projects that we're working on that we're very, very excited about. Um, you know, one of our passions is in recognizing these critical incidents and what we train for is optimal performance in these incidents is how do we assist in accomplishing that and ensuring that? And while the ability to perform skills is important, uh, we really believe that the crux to a successful and positive outcome is in decision-making. So we've focused a lot lately on a program called Brain Science. Uh, it is a neuroscience, neuroplasticity program that helps uh, people in any one of these disciplines, fire, EMS, police, um, be able to make decisions faster, uh, more accurately uh, under stress. And so we're, we're spending a lot of time looking at that and in, in developing that and getting that uh, pushed out into the field. Uh, we're very, very excited about, uh, about that program. That's so um, fascinating. You know, we just recently, uh, four months ago, three or four months ago, recently added a module to the uh, Active Shooter Instant Management Advanced class on managing cognitive overload to avoid getting into cognitive lock. Um, yeah. And it's been fascinating to, to see that. The very first time we talked about it, we kind of talked about it first thing in the morning on day one, and we realized that was a terrible mistake. Um, so then we, we tuned it in and put it right smack in the middle of the class on the afternoon of day two when everybody was starting to feel that pressure. Um, we've moved on from the simple scenarios you know, there's some complexity, there's difficulty, there's a lot of decisions to be made, a lot of cross-communication, and it's very easy to get into cognitive overload. And it's been a fascinating conversation to have with responders and talk about what that feels like and some of the coping mechanisms, you know, to recognize it uh, in yourself, to recognize it in others, and how to kind of avoid the edge. I'd, I'd love to compare notes with you at some point on that. Yeah, I'm... I'm uh, super excited about this. I think it's just amazing. Uh, in my research and looking at it, you know, I have a son that uh, works in special operations as a pilot, and he was the one that uh, really kind of helped turn me on to this a little bit. But, uh, you know, our U.S. Special Operations Command has adopted this and is using it wholesale. But uh, 
perhaps a, a better example of you know sort of the utility of this is professional sports are using this. Uh, Major League Baseball, the NFL, other sports, but uh, probably the best example that I could use to endorse it, so to speak, would be uh, Tom Brady. He's uh, been using this for about three or four years, and many people would say that he's playing better now than he's ever been. He himself would say that. And in fact, in one of his, uh, I think, interviews, he even mentioned that he's been using this type of training, and it allows him to break a huddle and now more accurately and with greater speed assess the play that was called in the huddle versus what the defense is presenting to them. And then how to make the audibles to adjust to exploit any potential weakness of that defense versus what they have in terms of player packages, et cetera. And when you think about it, the football game is still 60 minutes long. The play clock has not changed. But he will tell you that he can process much, much more information in a shorter period of time or at least the same period of time as he did before. And that's what's led to his improved performance. And so I think the ability to take that and adapt it to uh, public safety, fire EMS and police, and maximize the same potential in our performance would be a huge, huge service to our respective communities. So we're very excited about that. We're also very excited about we have developed public order standards now. So, you know, we're all uh, way too familiar with uh, a lot of the civil unrest um, that has been taking place here recently, uh, resulting in a lot of property damage, a lot of injuries. And how, how do we respond to that? Because what we've learned is that the tactics that we used 50 years ago uh, do not translate to success today. And just as tactical teams were developed as a response to unique problems, we believe that law enforcement is at a crossroads where they need to be looking at the creation of public order units and public order teams, which are their own subspecialty within law enforcement and how to uh, interface, act, police, enforce, protect their communities in these environments. And so that is probably the other area that we're uh, excited to see that we can make a difference in improving law enforcement's service to the public. Well, and I can tell you from from our side, our team is so excited about working with you guys on designing some of the exercise scenarios and the incident management uh, support of that. Uh, that dis- you know, to be able to exercise that in the class, both in a, a low fidelity way, and also um, not to give away the the secret, but uh, a very high fidelity way, um, and uh, a very immersive way of putting people in those roles and give them that opportunity that we were talking about earlier of just being able to practice, practice a couple different no scenarios, practice a couple different things. We are, we are so excited to be working with your team on that and, and uh, look forward to many more great things to come. 
Well, Thor, again, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat today. And I realize some people may be listening to this after the fact. So this is being announced on uh, Tuesday, July 19th in 2022, if you happen to be hearing this podcast uh, after the fact. But Thor, thank you for being here today. Um, Thank you for the support. We look forward to working with you for years to come uh, to try to make a difference here for the common good. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity for us to be partnering with you as well. Uh, I do believe that this type of collaboration is going to make a difference. I agree completely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Uh, We are going to be back on track in uh, dropping podcasts from a regular basis here moving forward. I look forward to talking to you on the next one. Until then, stay safe.